the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In last week's edition of Challenge 2.0, we began with an examination of what have been called food deserts or food wastelands and their impact on the health and wealth of communities, especially those of people of color. We'll continue that conversation this week with a man called the sous chef, winner of not just one, but several of the highly coveted James Beard Awards. Sean Sherman has made it his mission to address not only the food deserts confronting indigenous communities, but also the related economic and health crises. We'll begin with a brief orientation video put together by Sean and his team. We're very pleased to have Sean Sherman with us. Uh, he is the founder and the CEO chef of The Sous Chef. And among his many accolades and accomplishments is this book, The Sous Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. I've not tried the recipes yet, but I'm looking forward to that very, very much, Sean. Uh, among your other honors and milestones was serving the first, as I understand, decolonized dinner at the James Beard House in New York City. Uh, from what I understand, that's sort of the culinary equivalent of getting an Oscar or an Emmy. Uh, can you tell us why that was such a prestigious invitation? Um, you know, uh, you know, for a long time, the James Beard house, which was literally his house, um, they, after he passed and moved on, they converted it as a space to continue his work, which was bringing in chefs, bringing in creatives, hosting dinners. And uh, so we were invited um, to do that a while back now. And, uh, you know, of course we're just doing something different. So it definitely totally stands out. And, you know, the James Beard awards, um, are a pretty big deal for restaurant uh, people in the industry. And, you know, so I feel lucky that I have three awards and, uh, and a nomination. Um, so it's all, it's been, uh, it's been quite the path. When you describe this as a decolonized dinner, uh, can you give us a little insight into, what that means precisely, and then how that determined what you chose to serve for that dinner. Absolutely. So basically what we focus on is Native American indigenous foods. Uh, myself, I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. I'm enrolled with the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe, and I've been working in kitchens and restaurants basically my you know ever since I was 13 years old, so pretty much my whole life it feels like. And, um, you know, I worked my way up into an executive chef position when I was pretty young and worked for lots of restaurants and had a pretty good career doing that. But a little ways into that career, I had the epiphany of doing what I'm doing now, which was this focus on indigenous foods, because I realized the complete absence of indigenous foods out there. There were no Native American restaurants. Um, there were very few cookbooks on the subject. Um, and the few cookbooks that were out there seemed very fusionized with a lot of things. 
Mm-hmm. So I just really wanted to come up with a different philosophy and I worked on it for quite a few years to try to just really try to understand personally what that meant. Um, and so I started really being curious what my Lakota ancestors were eating, harvesting, foraging, preserving, trading, all these things and how they were processing foods. And and so as I studied more, um, it really kind of forced me into understanding a lot more about the history of why, why things they are the way they are and why we don't have Native American restaurants in every single city. And it really um, painted a picture of uh, what is U.S. colonialism and just understanding what that meant. And I started, uh, when I started doing the sous chef, I not only started just doing these foods, but I started doing a lot of talks. Um, So I've been to many different universities. I've been to countries all over the world. And I basically kind of spell out like what happened with relations between indigenous peoples of North America and especially the U.S. government. Um, and just kind of show, showing that. So when we're using terms like decolonize, it's really kind of understanding what colonization actually means to us as Indigenous peoples in the U.S. Because mm-hmm. colonization was the policy or practice of acquiring full or partial political control over another country, occupying it with settlers and exploiting it economically. And it's not unique to North America because it's happened all over the globe. Mm-hmm. But, you know, me focused on just North America because that's where we are in the U.S. especially and just looking at how U.S. colonialism affected indigenous peoples. So when I started creating indigenous foods, we really wanted to push back against the European influence to showcase there was a lot of amazing foods and flavors out there across the board and so much diversity. So part of the philosophy was just cutting away colonial ingredients. So we removed things that didn't exist here before. So no dairy, no wheat flour, no cane sugar, no beef, pork, or chicken. And there happens to be a lot of food beyond those pieces, you know? So it became a big study in wild foods, native agriculture, understanding what seeds are still alive out there, food processing, food preservation. And it's really just kind of taking back what is uh, indigenous education in, in a non, non-colonized, non-Eurocentric education viewpoint and spelling that out and being able to tell that story through food. Mm-hmm. So what precisely did you serve that uh, particular evening at James Beard House? Oh, that was a while back, but you know, we <laughs> tried to, we focused on uh, trying to create a menu that really represented what was indigenous Manhattan, um, because obviously you're on that island, particularly there's barely anything left that's organic or natural. Um, and, you know, it was an interesting show piece to be able to show that even though the status is like this with this huge city built on this land, we still know the history. We still know the tribes that live here, that they're still around the area. Mm-hmm. We still know the foods that they would have had here on this island, particularly the kind of seafood, the kind of land animals, the kind of wild foods, the kind of uh, native agriculture that was huge out in that region. And we started to put together foods from those pieces. And we worked really hard um, trying to source from a lot of uh, indigenous producers out on the East Coast. Um, so we had found like like uh, um, we found a fi- like a, a fishing group right outside of Long Island, um, and they were you know a native fishing group and bringing in lots of interesting things. Mm-hmm. Um, we were using seed savers in northern nor- northern New York, um, so we were able to get a lot of cool varietals of indigenous corns and beans and squash and sunflower seeds and things like that. And, you know, we just had a lot of fun with that dinner and that's been our style. Like we've been able to do these pop-up dinners all over the U.S., uh, parts of Canada, up in Alaska, down in Mexico, and really focused on just where we are and looking at it through that indigenous pre-colonial perspective. It sounds like this had to involve considerable research on your part. Uh, Were you able to pull some of uh, the nature of uh, a decolonized dinner or... uh, 
uh, pre-colonization foods from elders uh, within Lakota Nation or other tribes, or did you have to go even beyond that? Yeah, I mean, initially I just started looking around and it was hard to figure out where to start. Um, Luckily for me, I had some botany in my background because I worked for the U.S. Forest Service right out of Mm -hmm. high school. So my job was a field surveyor at a very young age, and I had to learn the names of all the trees and plants inside the northern Black Hills. Um, So just realizing how much plant diversity out there was a really kind of big leg up of just understanding that piece. And when I started talking to elders, uh, one of my uncles, he um, has quite a few different degrees, but he's an ethnobotanist, and he just really loves the plants of the what is around the pine. Ridge region in the Badlands area of South Dakota. And he just knows those histories so well. So I did have people in my family that were able to help out. But you know, a lot of the a lot of the elders at the time I was searching had also gone through assimilation, also gone through a different Mm -hmm. education form. Um, So you know, a lot of the knowledge was obviously broken because of colonization, because of reservation systems, because of boarding schools. Mm -hmm. And So, you know, for me, I really kind of went to nature. I went outdoors. I really connected with the plants. I started like really learning how to identify and uh, bring these foods back into the kitchen and start to play with them and try to keep, you know, try to find a relationship with them. Basically. I also connected with lots of seed savers and seed keepers out there trying to understand how many indigenous seeds were still alive. So I've been on the board with seed savers exchange for maybe seven or eight years now. And um, just really trying to understand all those pieces because the migration of agriculture is a really amazing untold history of North America, mm-hmm. you know, with corn culture starting at the bottom of Mexico and basically shooting both directions and crawling throughout all of Mexico, the Caribbean, the Mississippi, Missouri River Valleys, all the way throughout the East Coast. And there's just so much massive indigenous agriculture that was going on out in those areas and growing the same things in that whole stretch, you know, varieties of corn, varieties of beans, varieties of squash, varieties of sunflower seeds and tobacco and cotton and all these things. Um, So there's just so much to explore, so much to understand. Um, And, you know, so for me, it's a lifelong journey. I'll never get to the end of understanding all of it because there's too much diversity out there um but you know that's not a bad problem to have no not at all uh let's circle back you talked you've referenced a couple times your uh, childhood on the pine ridge reservation can you give us a sense of what your childhood was like uh and what led you on the path that you followed how somehow that caused you to come back to that uh inspiration or to follow that path Well, I mean, I would say we had a lot of freedom growing up. You know, I did grow up in the 70s and early 80s, and parenting was a little bit loose back then, and even even more so on the reservation, maybe. Um, I always tease my parents that, you know, boomers didn't really raise us as a generation. They just kicked us outside until dark, and that was basically (laughs) And uh, so we spent a lot of time outdoors, you know, TV wasn't a thing where I grew up, like we definitely had a TV, but we didn't have that many channels. I think we had two and a half to be exact. Um, So we were just very curious. We're always outside. We're always just, you know, using our imagination and just being, being outdoors and a little feral, but not bad. You know, we all survived. So, and uh, you know, so, you know, we, again, like I grew up on my grandfather's ranch, so we had access to horses. Um, There was just endless plains out there. Uh, we were so close to the Badlands, you know, I remember finding dinosaur bones as kids and just tossing them aside because I didn't really think much of them. <laughs> just like more rocks, you know, until like later in life, I realized some of those were worth thousands of dollars as we grew up extremely poor. 
And, you know, so it was an interesting childhood. And, you know, we spent a lot of summers in the Black Hills. We, my grandparents had a cabin in the Black Hills. And so we'd go up there for a few weeks at a time and just, you know, run around these hills and climb up, climb up cliffs and rocks and just kind of explore as much as we could. So a lot of time outdoors for me. And so for me, I think that was a really great way to grow up. Um, just, you know, being, having that freedom, having that ability to see outside, um, to see the world and to just, you know, just be connected, you know, to where you are. Um, so it's not, it's not a childhood that, uh, I don't think most kids have anymore. No. And I, I wonder, you know, looking at your, uh, website, Sean, and also reading your book, uh, you talked about uh, the place of uh, hunting and fishing, and you've already talked about foraging and that sort of thing. Uh, do you think that's part of the problem in terms of uh, the food industry and the way people relate to their food is simply there's not that sense of where it originated from, and it's just something that arrives magically packaged in their local supermarket? Absolutely. Cause you know, I've been in restaurants for a long time and, you know, I'll get these young kids from the suburbs right out of high school and they can't even identify what a salary looks like, you know, and you know, it's no offense to them. It's just that, that they're so used to having everything provided for them and they never really have to think about where food comes from. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, it is, it is an issue. And I think the pandemic really highlighted, you know, how broken this system can be easily um, with something like what happened to us during COVID and it's still happening, but, you know, it changed everything. And I think that, you know, for us, it didn't affect us as much for the foods that we were serving because we did a lot of food relief. We were doing up to 10,000 meals a week during the pandemic. Wow. But, you know, we knew exactly who we were buying our food from because we were just reaching out to our, our local people and finding out what they had to move. And we were just mm -hmm. moving it and creating recipes with what was around us. And so I think, you know, it's really important for people to understand that local isn't just a key word. Buying local isn't just a key word, that it's really something that's an important piece to the puzzle. Like we need to localize our food systems. We need to keep those food dollars within our own region to help mm -hmm. support of the the food growth out there and really looking for people who are doing things organically of course utilizing more permaculture and you know as we grow you know and, and showcasing a lot of a lot more plant diversity and the foods that we're serving um, hoping to be role models for opening up people's eyes to use a lot more wild plants and just using the world where they might live a little bit better now as you look at the foods that you're developing uh, and the overall enterprises that you've developed, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment, that did not match your early experience growing up on the reservation in terms of foods that were provided uh, to you. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what impact that had in terms of the health uh, experiences of the people that grew up on a reservation or lived on a reservation? Absolutely. Cause you know, we were lucky um, having my grandparents ranch because we did have access to a lot of beef, which wasn't typical for a lot of families out there, but we still grew up primarily with a lot of commodity foods in our cupboards. And uh, you know, so the commodity food program has been around for a while and there's also the USDA also runs the FDPIR, which is the federally distributed Indian something acronym. Sorry. I can't remember, but <laughs> Um, but, you know, it's been around for a long time. And unfortunately, those food sources um, do not have a lot of healthy nutrition in them. And mm -hmm. it's really hard to 
create nutritional foods because it's, you know, people are used to seeing these foods in schools. They're seeing these foods in hospitals. Of course, the military utilizes versions of these foods. And, um, you know, but for in native reservations out there, um, indigenous reservations that there, people are still utilizing that today. And, you know, some communities are so rural that it's hard to get a lot of food access. So if your cupboards are filled with commodity foods and your local food source is a gas station, um, there's, you know, there's a direct connection to why some of these communities could have upwards to 60% type 2 diabetes and massive amounts of obesity and heart disease and all these other foodborne illnesses. So, you know, for us, we're just trying to showcase a better way. We're trying to figure out ways to make indigenous foods more accessible. Um, we're trying to create a lot more education around that because the two pieces go hand in hand. And we're just looking at uh, ways to kind of problem solve of how can we change those systems? How can we make sure the next generation isn't stuck on just these unhealthy food bases with lots of white carbs that just create all sorts of health problems, you know? So there's a lot to do, but we see very direct paths. And that's um, the whole reason we set up uh, the nonprofit that we have here in Minnesota, which is mm -hmm. called Natives. It's an acronym, North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, and people can visit natives.org for more information. But we just have this grand plan of creating uh, centralized uh, regional center points to help develop more Indigenous food operations, create food access, create distribution points, create a lot more education, and just support a lot of the tribal communities that are out there to adapt a lot more healthier Indigenous foods into their communities. When you begin to make available uh, the various foods that you have developed or re, uh, redeveloped, uh, do you find that there's difficulty getting people who have been uh, grown up on processed foods, fast foods, et cetera, to switch their diets? Or is it almost a revelation and a sense of pride for them to be able to have that available and begin utilizing? It's a little bit of both because, I mean, obviously people love the comfort foods that they're used to, that they've grown up with, that they know how to make. And a lot of it is unfortunately processed food. Mm -hmm. And Oh, and uh, but also people do um, feel a, a big sense of pride of knowing some of these ingredients and, you know, seeing some create creative uh, foods coming out of some of these ingredients. And um, so, you know, so we're hoping just to, you know, try to be role models. And that's what the whole point of the restaurant was here in Minneapolis was just being showcasing what's possible for modern indigenous foods, because we're not trying to recreate the past and cook like 1491. We're trying to, you know, create a path that showcases what's possible moving forward. Like what mm -hmm. can we do now? possible in the future. Um, so we just have a lot of options um, out there and we, uh, you know, we're growing a big team and I think we had almost 150 employees this last summer with our, at our busiest time period. And we're just going to keep building and growing more, you know, but mm -hmm. we're bringing in a whole new generation of young native uh, um, talents and chefs and you know, I think it's going to be an exciting time as we see more and more indigenous uh, focused restaurants opening up across everywhere, hopefully. On your website, you had, uh, I found it a rather stunning uh, graphic time lapse of the onset of colonialism and the takeover of indigenous lands and then the development of reservations. I'd like to go to that video uh, just briefly, and we're going to play that with your description at the time. And sure. once we come back, then I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. But let's take a look at that video. You know, first off, just to get everybody on the same page, like what is colonialism? Um, the easiest way to understand colonialism, Google. 
<laughs> the policy or practice of acquiring full or partial political control over another country, occupying it with settlers, and exploiting it economically. So we see this happen in history a lot, right? Um, we see a heavy, heavily coming out of Europe during the age of exploration. And we see, uh, you know, basically going all around the world, Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, the Americas. All of this area is being affected by European colonialism. Um, people are getting pushed around, um, people are getting delocated, you know, all sorts of bad things are happening. But then we look at US colonialism, which is something very recent and people don't understand. So at the beginning of our country, in the early, in the late 1700s, still over 80% of the entire part of the land was still under indigenous control at that point in time. So Native American history isn't something that's ancient history, right? It's very recent. So again, this is just the, the era of my great-grandfather. So you'll see how fast that the U.S. government starts to push to take over um, America, you know, indigenous people's lands. And it happens really fast, and especially after Civil War. So basically between the years of 1840 and 1870, um, almost all of the land is taken over. And during that time, the same thing is happening. People are being de dislocated. They're getting pushed around. People are getting pushed into Oklahoma. Um, entire families are getting wiped out. All of these farming communities, seeds are disappearing from these in, um, all this farming that's happening on the eastern side of the United States. And it happens really, really fast. So for me, it was just kind of an eye-opener to think about like how recent this is and how little people don't understand uh, our own histories, right? Because I mean, if all you uh, read about in history is from your high school textbooks, you're going to have a very skewed sense of American history since you know it was written by the U.S. government. So at the end of the 1800s, we have very little of any control of our lands left. So we lost a lot of things during that time period. So we're kind of in the sense of kind of traumatic healing at this point. Um, we're barely getting to the point of healing. We just went through a very traumatic time period and a very recent time period too. Sean, to follow on the video uh, that we just shared uh, that you had used, I think on a presentation in Napa, California, if you could uh, share with us a little bit about the impact of, the ongoing impact of colonialism, uh, both in your experience as a member uh, of Lakota Nation, but also from other people within the uh, indigenous uh, communities throughout the United States. Yeah, I mean, because we look at indigenous issues on a global scale, really, it's a very pan-indigenous kind of perspective because we see colonialism happening that happened everywhere and is still happening in parts of world you know so um obviously places like brazil was still like murdering indigenous peoples and and uh, just very recently you know and you know so there's a lot of extreme violence that happens there's a lot of twisting of histories that happen because we grow up not even knowing a lot of these true histories that happened right here on the land spaces that we're growing up like you can find them if you dig for them but they're not available to our education system you know and we're in a weird time period where you know people are getting punished and some states are completely removing uncomfortable histories from their curriculum which is not a good move because mm -hmm. we should be very aware of a lot of the atrocities that some people had to go through and some people and uh continue to go through even even still today but you know so colonialism not only brings on um, an immense amount of uh, this violence and this culture clash but you know I just feel like where we are in the United States United States government has never really taken into account or, or 
um, just like accepted its own history of how it became a world power off of stolen indigenous land spaces mm -hmm. um, on top of that stealing a lot of indigenous peoples from Africa to utilize as forced labor to just build a massive economy. And, you know, there's a lot of effects that are still very much apparent, you know, land ownership is a huge one. Cause if you look at all privatized land in the United States, it's still 98% white right now today, which mm -hmm. is a direct result of that U S colonialism. And, you know, it's just kind of, and that uh, cultural dominance that's been set kind of into the whole structure of it. And so we just have a lot of pieces to do. Our education system's a mess. Our healthcare system's a mess. Our food, our food systems are a mess. And, you know, if we look at how indigenous communities are surviving for millennia, there's a lot of really wonderful answers out there because we could be utilizing a lot more localized agriculture. We could be utilizing a lot more permaculture and just growing food plants everywhere. Mm -hmm. I always say in my talks that lawns are stupid and we should just be putting food everywhere we absolutely can. But we also need trained people to know what to do with all these foods, both wild and domesticated how to preserve them how to create pantry items out of them and how to you know support people because you know everybody deserves food out there and a lot of indigenous communities that was just you know part of their philosophy that they would feed anybody that needed food you know but today food is being under a capitalistic system like it's really the rich that can afford food um, and it really does depend on your zip code of what kind of nutritional access you have you have available, you know, to your house and to your community. So there's a lot of massive changes that really need, we need to focus and you know, even a restaurant is, is a tough business. Obviously it's kind of probably one of the worst businesses to be in, but a, a really good restaurant could be extremely influential. And that's what we're hoping that we could just be a really strong role model for doing something different, for doing something a lot more intentional, for really considering who we're buying our food from and why we're putting this food on the menu to be thinking a lot more seasonal, to be utilizing a lot more wild foods and even alternative proteins, you know, cause we don't have beef, pork, or chicken on the menu. We don't have dairy. We don't have wheat flour. We don't have ranch dressing or ketchup or soda you know we just have a lot of really wonderful foods that largely represents the land that it happens to sit on well this leads us very nicely into the next part of what we'd like to talk about with you and that is how you are taking this inspiration and not only addressing that within the minneapolis area but also what you're trying to do uh, nationwide and continent-wide uh I knew that we'd not be able to fit this in in the context of one program. So we're going to thank you right now and hope that everybody will rejoin us for part two of this conversation in next week's edition of Challenge 2.0. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, Perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.